Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Welcome to the Dwell Digital Living Room. Here we are once again, and we are starting a brand new series this week called Captivity where we're sort of checking out stories of biblical characters, of uh, people in Scripture who are in captivity, and seeing if it has any relevance to our lives today. I mean, it kind of feels like we're living in our own form of captivity. And here's what's really interesting that I've noticed uh, reading through some of these stories in Scripture is that the world did not stop when the people of God were in captivity. They continued living out their mission. They continued chasing hard after God as best they knew how. They continued seeking after Him, and He was still their God no matter what. So I think the same has to be true for us today. What's interesting is it feels like this virus is holding us all captive. But you know what I've noticed is that it's worse to be in captivity when you don't know who your captor is. I've also been thinking a lot about captivity stories throughout history and even literature, and I thought about uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, which I am by no means nerdy enough to have even read, but there's this awesome podcast called Fictional, where he gives you like a Reader's Digest version. There's also a really, really great Wishbone movie if you want to check that out. This is a good time to do a shallow deep dive on The Count of Monte Cristo. You know what's really amazing is uh, this guy, Edmond Dantes, he shows back up at his home, he gets tricked, and then... Uh, gets imprisoned, and what's the worst part about it is he has no idea who is holding him captive. I mean, he's sent off to this prison, but he has no idea who threw him in there or why he even got thrown in there. And so he stays there for like six years, and he's just sort of uh, deeply depressed. He's trying to like starve himself to death. He's really like trying to end it all because his captivity is so unbearable. And then... Uh, He hears this weird scratching in the wall, and it turns out it's like this crazy old priest, right? So, you know, crazy old pastors were often sort of like kooky side characters in movies and books, so I'm fine filling that role for you if you need that in your life. This kooky old priest busts up into his cell. He's trying to tunnel out and hits this other guy's cell instead, and they build a relationship, and this priest eventually teaches him everything he knows, uh, teaches him how to get his life back together, and it all starts by this priest helping him figure out Who actually imprisoned him? You see, there's something kind of odd. Uh, When you're imprisoned, when you're in captivity, and you don't know who it is that has put you there, it is so much worse than when you actually figure out who and why you are there. And I imagine we're kind of all asking ourselves those same questions even today. Like, who has put us here in this captivity? And, and sort of easy answers might be, you know, like your local authorities or something, like, you know, the mayor, the governor. Uh, it might even be just sort of like the government, you know, writ large to think like, you know, uh, there is this body that is controlling things that is outside of my control, that kind of thing. And, and that can often build up a lot of like anger and animosity to say like to have an outside force to throw all that on. Could even be like a wider thing to think like the virus itself is kind of personified as the one that is holding us captive. 
or could he even, you know, maybe bought into some crazy conspiracy theories to say, like, you know, this is Big Pharma or, you know, uh, the Illuminati. I don't even know what the conspiracy theories are. But whatever it is, like, people are really clamoring to find, like, sort of the sense of, like, who is doing this to us. And I think if you're a person of faith or, or a person who at least is, is curious about, like, divine, you know, movement in the world, eventually you get to this place where you would probably ask the question. Maybe you've asked this question before. Is God the one holding us captive? Now, I'm going to do a little bit of a deep dive here. And I really, really, really must ask you to stay with me through this entire video. This would be the worst video to pop in and out of. It's not going to make a lot of sense. And you're going to be like, is Josh saying that God said that? And, you know, uh, luckily no one is tweeting anything that I say. So there's not going to be any sort of tweetable moments there taken out of context. But still, it is kind of like a very, very complex thing. And uh, all too often in our world, we really, really want simple answers to complex problems. And uh, instead, a complex problem actually requires a complex answer. And so that's definitely going to be the case today. Now, for many of us, if we're asking the question, like, is God doing this? You have to sort of run into one of two camps. One, you can either look at God, if you think that he exists, and say, like, well, you know, God created everything, and he just set the world in motion, and now he's just standing back and watching all of it happen. Which is uh, an idea called deism, and uh, it is not really something that is uh, consistent with the God that is described in the Bible. Uh, it doesn't really work out that God did all of this stuff for and with his people in the Bible, but now he is completely hands-off. So not really sure if that's like actually a viable option. Which means, then, you have to flip to the other side and say that God is active in the world, he is in control, and he is also choosing when to act and when not to act, or, or is like constantly in control the whole time. In fact, if you think about it, an omnipotent being choosing not to act is an action in and of itself, right? Like, if God is saying, like, I can do everything, but I'm choosing not to do that, that is kind of him still controlling the situation. So, you know, whether you're sort of like viewing God as being in control of the way that every single leaf fall, falls, or if you only think of him as stepping in in big moments, either way, he is still omnipotently choosing to control the entire universe. And that can lead you to a pretty frustrating place, right? Almost a place where you're like, wow, so if that's the case, if God is omnipotently, which means all-powerful, if he's omnipotently in control of the entire universe, then he must be in control of this too. He must be in control even over a global pandemic. Our passage is pretty complex today as well. It comes from a book uh, that we don't very often read, or at least I don't very often read, called Lamentations. And uh, it was actually an extremely important time to the Israelite people. You see, uh, if you grew up kind of, you know, in church or something, or if you've been around church for a while, we know a lot about Jesus and the time that he was around. We know about the early church. And then in the Old Testament, it's kind of like, you know, all the funky, cool stories in Genesis. And then you have, you know, the Exodus, God's people coming out of slavery. They take over the promised land. We've got some cool things about David. And everything else seems kind of muddy. But for the Israelite people... The time when they were in captivity, when they were uh, picked up and shipped off to Babylon, was actually one of the most 
important and richest times of their history. It's also one of the darkest. And that's where our passage comes from today. You see, uh, a lot of prophets foretold and they were like, hey, bad stuff's coming. You should turn back to God. Israelite people did not do this. And so God allowed another army to come in and invade them, to take them over. And what would happen back in those days is that an army would come in, they'd take up all the people that were there, and they would displace them to another place, maybe take them back to their sort of home base, as is the case in this story today. So they took all the people out of Jerusalem, you know, the center of God's promised land for his promised chosen people. They took all those people and they shipped them off to Babylon, which was the center of evilness and wickedness and everything that was wrong with the world, at least from the perspective of the Israelite people at the time. So uh, uh, armies would do that to sort of make sure that no uprising could come up out of Jerusalem. If you take people out of their place and put them somewhere else, uh, you sort of take away some of their power in that way. Um, And so they sort of intentionally made them like, you know, kind of second-class citizens, like refugees in this place uh, where they couldn't rise up, they couldn't build all of this uh, stuff. They couldn't actually like build up uh, an insurrection against the Babylonian people. So that's where our story lands today. The author of Lamentations is writing from Babylon, and he is recognizing uh, the sort of pain and sorrow that is uh, the people of God during this time. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who is great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night, with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. This is some real, honest, hard-hitting sadness here. And he's talking about the city of Jerusalem. You see, for Jerusalem, for the Israelite people, it was it was the place where everything finally happened, right? You know, they, they bear this like long-standing history where they were in slavery in Egypt, and then Moses took them out, and then they had 40 years in the desert. They lost an entire generation. Then they come in, and they take the promised land, and there's a generation full of fighting. And then finally, when the temple is built, uh, when King David and King Solomon are sitting on their throne Everything is finally right with the world, and everything has finally come to fruition. All the promises of God are captured right here in the city of Jerusalem, and the author of Lamentations is looking back fondly. Uh, I can picture him sort of like peering off in the direction across millions of miles of desert to say, over there is Jerusalem. How lonely she sits. How alone she is. What, What a city that was once a princess has now become a slave. And who's to blame? Well, we see that in the first half of verse 5. It says, Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because the Lord afflicted her. Aha, there you have it. It was God. God is the one that did this to them. But there's a little bit more to the story. The second half of verse 5 says, For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away, captives before the foe. See, now that, that's a little bit different, a little bit more nuanced than just being able to sort of say, oh, God did it. 
In fact, I'm not even sure who you would say is the actual agent there, right? Uh, The Lord has afflicted her because of her transgressions. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament, right? God loves his people. There's this cycle that they go through. God loves his people. They uh, accept and embrace his love, and then eventually they reject him. Uh, I think the best example might be uh, right after they get saved and taken out of Egypt. It's super climactic. He splits the Red Sea. Uh, Everything's going amazing. He's protecting them and leading them through the desert. And then all of a sudden people are like, hey, maybe we should make our own God out of gold. It'd be pretty cool. And uh, this cycle just continues throughout the Old Testament. Uh, God loves his people. They reject him. He disciplines them. And then they turn back to him. It repeats all the time. In this situation, the nation of Israel had completely turned their backs on God. They thought that they didn't need him. They had turned to other gods. They had turned to other leaders to, to set them free. But here's the amazing thing is that God would always take them back. That's the one thing that we see consistently throughout the Old Testament is that God is always more faithful to his people than they are to him. Here's the other thing that uh, I think is pertinent for us today and, and probably won't be all that tweetable. As a Christian, one of our core beliefs is that the problems and evil and pain and brokenness that exist in the world are because of sin. That's because uh, the original humans, Adam and Eve, and by extension, all of us, by extension and even our own individual guilt, since we all know that we have done wrong, we've contributed to the brokenness and evil of the world, uh, because of all of that, all of that sin, evil exists in the world. Check out Genesis chapter 3. You see, in that situation, uh, Adam and Eve are there, and they have the choice to follow after God or trying to become gods themselves, try and be like God, and try and use this beautiful gift that he has given them of free will to choose to obey him and not eat of the tree or to disobey him and uh, try in their own ways to control their own destiny. They choose uh, the wrong way. They choose the path of sin the same way that uh, probably you and I would make the exact same choice. And because of that, we invite death, we invite decay, we invite brokenness, we invite earthquakes and famines and wars and child abuse, and murder, and lies, and so much other brokenness, and even pandemic viruses into the world. This was not the way that it was supposed to happen. This is not the way that God set up the world to be. You see, before this, before uh, the very first sin, God and human beings were living in perfect harmony, and He provided for all of their needs, and they were fully satisfied in Him. That was the original world and the world that we were promised when Jesus comes back to set everything to rights. So, uh, just to recap, to make sure that we're clear, the question, is God responsible for everything that happens in the world? You have to say yes. He's in control. He is the omnipotent creator of the universe. But uh, it's a little bit like indirect to say that he is responsible for all of the, the sort of suffering that we're experiencing right now. See, we, in our sin, are the reason that evil even exists. So things like coronavirus, that's the only reason that it is allowed to actually exist. But here is the best part, because I know that that is like super dark uh, to recognize that somehow something so heinous and evil and, uh, and terrible happening to the entire world is somehow related to the evil that exists within you. But here's the best part. 
uh, God, being the wronged party, being the one who has been sinned against, does not leave us to our own devices. He doesn't just step back from the world and say, well, I made it perfect, and then they decided to break it, and so now they're just going to have to suffer and live with it. No, he actually is constantly working and acting on our behalf. The other day, uh, Evie was acting a fool. I know it's hard for some of you to believe, but it was happening. And uh, she was getting into trouble. And so uh, I told her that she would have to go to timeout. She's super mad. She's kicking and screaming. Apparently, we're at that phase of toddlerhood. It was like this whole big scene, right? And then, uh, after she goes to timeout, I take her to sit her down. She's like super, super angry about it. Super, super frustrated at me. Then after, you know, three minutes or two hours, I don't know. It's coronavirus. Who knows how long anything is, right? I go back in there to take her out of timeout. When I do, I was expecting to open up the door on the grumpy little three-nager that I had put in there. And instead, I open up the door and I say, she can get out of timeout. And she runs as quickly as she can. She runs into my arms and embraces me in a big, huge hug. And I scooped her up and wiped away her tears from she, she was crying. And somehow I realized in that moment that I was the source, in her mind, of her punishment. Now, now she knows that she was the one that did wrong. Uh, this was not sort of like out of character for me. She knows that when she does things like that, she will be punished for it. But what's odd is I thought I was just being a bad guy, being a punisher, but instead, in that moment, I was simultaneously the one who was disciplining her and the one who was her savior, the one who was her salvation from this terrible thing that she was experiencing called timeout. It's so strange that that could even sort of like exist in her mind, but what's really, really odd is that the author of Lamentations does the exact same thing. See, he spends two full chapters talking about how horrible life is, and he's recognizing that it is uh, because of God disciplining, disciplining the Israelite people because of what they had done, but still, God was the one who had brought about all of this calamity and all of this brokenness, all this evil in his life, and yet... Then in chapter 3, he does this total switch to say, to recognize, that God is actually the only one that can bring them through and out of this. He says this in 3.19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers that it is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This, this was true for the author of Lamentations, and it is true for you. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord.
in the midst of everything that's going on around you, in the midst of all of the swirling questions of, of, of who is the cause of your captivity, in the midst of all of the, the brokenness and the pain and the evil that you may see in the world around you, in the midst of the darkness that may have you sort of buried right now, know that God is still our best and only hope. He is the one who never turns away. He is the one who is faithful even when we are not. Right now, take a lesson from someone who is in real captivity. The author of Lamentations, sitting in a foreign land, sitting in bondage, with no control over his situation, he knows that it is his people's fault and that God is allowing him to experience this. But still, he sits patiently and quietly waiting on the Lord, waiting for salvation from the Lord. He seeks the Lord in his soul because he knows that God is faithful and that salvation is coming. He knew that God would eventually bring his people back to his promised land, but even more than that, I think deep down inside, He knew in places where he couldn't even fully describe that one day a Savior was coming, that God was going to send someone to save them, and not just save them from Babylonian captivity, but actually send someone to save them from death, that he was going to send his son Jesus to save humanity once and for all, to defeat the powers of evil and pain in this world forever. For us... We know that this is just a season of captivity. That no matter how dark it may look from your vantage point right now, we know that it is not forever. It is not the end. Everything is going to be set to some sort of new normal, some new form of right. But even more than that, we know that Jesus is coming one day to set the world fully to rights. That the work that he began on the cross is going to be fully accomplished, fully uh, set into motion, fully brought about, and he is going to make everything right again. He is going to somehow reconcile even the things that we think are broken beyond repair. He is going to somehow bring even things that we thought were lost forever uh, back to where they need to be. He is going to somehow make everything more right than we can even imagine. I mean, think about that for just a second. He is actually going to make all of uh, the wrong things in the world become untrue. That is the hope that we have in Jesus. Friends, I want you just to remember this as we close. The Lord is good to those who wait for him the soul that seeks him. Maybe in this time, maybe right now, instead of focusing on your captivity, instead of focusing on all the brokenness around you, instead of asking all of these uh, just hard and difficult and challenging questions, maybe this is a time to seek after the Lord, to wait patiently, to wait quietly for the Lord. For we know that he is good to those who wait for him. And to the one that seeks him, he will be found. I love you guys, and I believe in you. 
Let us know if you need anything at all, any help, uh, any assistance, or even just somebody to talk to. We want to be a, per, uh, a church who can point you closer to God, that can help you wait on the Lord even when it is challenging. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.